Welcome to the CFO Playbook, where we bring you insights and strategies on how the many obstacles facing heads of finance functions internationally are being tackled. I'm your host, Francis Vardenhorst. I'm the UK content lead at Soldo. And with every episode, we help you grow your team, your company, and yourself. Today, we welcome Chris Voss to the show. Chris is the former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, as well as the FBI's hostage negotiation representative for the National Security Council's hostage working group. Chris used his many years of experience in international crises and high stakes negotiations to to develop a unique program that applies globally proven techniques to the business world. As founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, he provides trainings for a variety of businesses and, and individuals on negotiation. He's also the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. In this episode, Chris and I talk about how he became an FBI negotiator in the first place, what a CFO can learn from his negotiation techniques, and the three biggest mistakes to avoid when negotiating. So let's get into it. Enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whichever medium you prefer. And we're joined now by Chris Voss. Chris, welcome to the podcast or the show. I'm not sure what the correct nomenclature is anymore, but uh, welcome nonetheless to the CFO Playbook. Thank you very much. I am happy to be here. Uh, you've got a really good voice for radio, actually. Has anyone ever told you that before? It's early in the morning for me. <laughs> um, so I've listened to a few podcasts with you on it. I haven't actually read your book yet. It's definitely on my wish list to buy. But one of the things that really initially when I was listening to you talk on uh, different interviews and different appearances you've done is I'm curious to know just how similar is hostage negotiation in real life to the film version? Do you shake your head uh, every time you see it in the films? Like, how close is that to real life? Yeah, most of them are pretty bad. There was a film uh, a number of years ago, The Negotiator, with uh, Samuel Jackson and Kevin Spacey. That one was closest. There were a few things that they changed, obviously, for dramatic effect. But that overall, that one was pretty good. And then also um, the movie Proof of Life with Russell Crowe and Meg Ryan a long time ago. There are portions of that that were accurate also. Straight from the horse's mouth here, folks. I mean, in terms of you're probably never going to find a, a better recommendation on uh, the realism of hostage negotiation in films than from Chris Voss himself. So just as a bit of background, how exactly does one get into that job? How does one lead into becoming a, an FBI hostage negotiator? Yeah, well, hostage negotiators in whatever agency they're in, and the FBI runs similar, is it's an additional duty. So you have a day job, so to speak. And at the time, I was on the terrorist task force. I was working terrorism. So in law enforcement, you can have specialties that you go into that kind of fit the different types of people, hostage negotiation, SWAT, evidence response, undercover. And you get interested uh, as an agent. You know, you're in whatever field division you're in. And ideally, you do a pretty good job as an investigator and they're looking for self-initiated people and you catch the attention of whoever's running the negotiation team and present yourself and, you know, they help you qualify or not. And if you're lucky enough, you get to go to the training at Quantico, the mystical Quantico. 
and then you do it as an additional duty. Pretty cool. I think one of the things you realize as you generally become more experienced in life is that you can learn pretty much from anyone, from any profession, and pretty much everyone has something to teach you. From your perspective, what exactly is it that we can, you know, someone, a CFO, for instance, or someone who's high up in a company can learn from your experience as a hostage negotiator? Really counterintuitive stuff. Uh, this thing that we call empathy, you know, we call tactical empathy. Its ability to influence, if you can wrap your mind around what it really is, it works under all circumstances. It doesn't matter as long as human beings are involved, whether it's a colleague, whether it's a client, whether it's an employee, whether it's somebody you work for. It seems mystical because it really operates on neuroscience and the feelings of being understood. But human beings are wired to be completely emotional. You know, every decision, you make up your mind based on what you care about, which makes decision-making an emotional process because your fundamental basis is what you care about. And so then it's just applied emotional intelligence. And, you know, you can succeed in the boardroom or work with what I learned dealing with a drug dealer or a terrorist. It's interesting, though, because like you talk about how negotiations aren't necessarily about logic or reason. And you said that yourself. It's like we're very emotional sometimes. But how does one go about establishing truth, if that makes any sense? You know, if you're trying to especially... And when it's a high stakes negotiation, you're trying to get to a, a point where, you know, some kind of benefit, maybe a mutual benefit. How do you, in that kind of sea of emotion, find find land? Truth, you know, reality, how we see things. I mean, it's all interpreted by how we react to it emotionally. You see a lone swimmer out in the ocean, maybe 100 yards offshore, and you see a shark coming up behind him. And... Then you find out that the lone swimmer was a serial killer and he just killed somebody and was getting away. How you view any given situation is based on what you care about, based on what your values are, based on what's important to you. And everybody has that banging around in their brain. Some people just have trouble admitting it or coming to grips with the fact that our filter and our lens that we look through everything is based on a few very fundamental ideas. You know, how does this affect my identity? How does this affect my future? You know, what am I concerned about? What sort of losses am I worried about? I mean, losses, the possibility of loss is the single biggest driver of human decision-making. It's not the only driver. It's just the single biggest, you know? So how is this going to affect my long-term outlook? You know, what's my vision of the future? People can undergo incredible stress if they think it's taking them to a wonderful place or not. Whatever the emotional ideas are that people are attached to really boils down to three or four fundamental ideas, which is how does this affect who I am as a human being and where is this taking me in my life? Then you begin to see its application of emotional intelligence, applied people smarts to all circumstances. It's interesting because like you talk about sort of getting people to kind of see see the future, so to speak. But does that kind of run up against an issue when you are, for instance, maybe doing like layoffs or whatever, and it's hard for people to see that, to not be in that moment. Yeah, it's very hard in a layoff to get somebody settled out. I mean, this is a person that's in a panic situation because they're thrown into a panic because the future that they thought ahead of them was gone. And that's what throws people into this sort of panic. And when suddenly the future becomes blank, simply saying that out loud, to say to somebody, right now you have no idea what 
where to go because the future that you thought looked one way now is just a complete blank. It's completely dark. You don't know what the future holds. And saying that to somebody actually helps them get a grip on what they're going through at the moment. The amygdala, you know, the fear centers of the brain, you get control over them just by being aware of them. And that's the thing about this that makes no sense. You say to yourself, well, how does that make sense? Uh, it doesn't matter that it makes sense. Those are the way the circuits in the brain work. When we call out specifically what's troubling us, for whatever reason, it gives us enough distance to be able to come to grips with it. And then there are certain other emotional states of mind that give us a tremendous resilience. Like what I'm seeing these days is curiosity as a state of mind is a superpower. It's such a superpower that in Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, it says that when you're in a curious state of mind, you're anti-fragile. What does that mean? You get smarter under pressure. You things that gain from disorder, from its post-traumatic stress growth. So Taleb's talking about that in his book. You know, he wrote the book, The Black Swan, which is where I derived, you know, that idea inspired the name of my company. Now, simultaneously, I happen to be reading Man's Search for Meaning about a guy in the concentration camps in World War II. And he survived physically and mentally. And there's a line in there when he said, as soon as you got curious about the environment, suddenly you got a certain detachment from it and you could survive psychologically. And I'm blown away by that because here's somebody, losing your job is nothing compared to being in a Nazi concentration camp. And yet the, the curious state of mind ended up being fundamental to psychologically surviving that experience. So curiosity is a superpower begins to show up in different places. And I don't know why that protects you so much being curious, but if it can protect you from the stress of a Nazi concentration camp where you don't know that you're even going to make it to sunset, it'll protect you from a lot of things if you can adopt that mindset. Yeah. It's one of the most powerful aspects of studying history of any kind. It really contextualizes Obviously, you don't want to minimize the suffering that people go through now, but I mean, like it does definitely, when you're having a bad day, put things into a bit more of a broader context. Like you say, someone who survived Auschwitz, even being curious about that, right? So obviously it's a, it's a horrible event and you can kind of just look at it as being a horrible event. But like you say, there's actually things that you can learn from people that went through that and, and what they used to get through it. Because obviously that's such a, that was such a horrific environment. I can't imagine a worse one. I mean, I had, and really, I always, until I started reading Man's Search for Meaning, you know, it's everywhere. I mean, I don't know that you're a human being and you haven't heard of the book or somebody hasn't discussed it. And I love to read. I'm thinking like, all right, well, this seems to be one of the books that everyone who really wants to become a better human being, to self-actualize, if you will, to enjoy life to the max. Everybody's talking about reading this book. So finally, I picked this darn thing up. And then I'm just seeing these fundamental truths and bang, curiosities there. And at Black Swan Group, when we're teaching negotiation, the head of my coaching team, Derek Gaunt, that's his mantra. He just tells people, stay curious, stay curious, stay curious. And it just keeps showing up across the board. And you're also smarter when you're curious. You're actually smarter when you're curious. So you're smarter, you protect yourself emotionally. It's kind of an amazing asset. Staying curious, I find, and generally being curious about people is in normal life, so to speak, is a wonderful way to, to very quickly build a rapport. Is that something that you've found useful in your work and also that you 
think is a particularly powerful thing in a negotiation. Yeah, I would agree because if you've adopted a curious mindset, you're very approachable. You know, the vibes, the energy that you give off, it's accepting, it's interested. I mean, we love to talk to people that are genuinely interested in us in a very positive way, even fascinated by us. Like there isn't a human being on earth that doesn't want to talk to someone who's fascinated by them. You know, interesting, interesting people are interested. And so if you're talking to somebody that's fascinated, hanging on every word you say, yeah, you're drawn to them. You like them. You want to communicate with them. You want to tell them things. You want to share things. That's rapport. You know, you, it's very easy to build rapport if you're interested in who you're talking with. Even in a very stressful environment. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. So there's plenty of mistakes one can make in a negotiation, specifically a high stakes negotiation. But are there a big three that if you just had to like name them right now, three big mistakes that people tend to make in a negotiation, what would they be? Oh, wow. Yeah, we've actually got a set of instruction that we call the 11 commandments of negotiation. And it might be in order. Thou shalt not. These are the mistakes. And one of them is probably you're making a mistake if you're insistent that your primary purpose is to get your point across. Because everybody needs to be heard. If you want to go first, if you want to talk first, you're not learning a thing about the other side. And an insistence on going first and pushing I got to get this out. I got a high anchor. I got to make my case. I got to affect the outcome by going first. You're really diminishing rapport with the other side. You know, they feel stepped on. They feel like you don't care what they have to say. You just don't care. Now, that might not be the case, but an insistence on going first has that impact and understanding the difference between intent and impact and what's the most likely impact on the other side. And there are a lot of negotiators that are like, I got to name a price first. I got to go first. I got to make my case first. That actually diminishes rapport. And you don't learn anything when you're talking. So you might be staking out a territory that's built on a false premise. And you could be very proud of yourself for doing that. And the other side likes you less. And it's less inclined to share any information with you once they get the chance. So you're really starting off on a wrong foot by going first or high anchoring. I mean, a lot of people are very determined. You know, they want to affect the potential scope of the agreement by staking a claim that's extreme one way or the other, high anchor, low anchor, extreme anchor. That's a really bad habit. And one of the counterintuitive things, one of the real differences between the black swan method and what the academics will teach you. You know, the academics will teach you some of the best practices like naming price first, strategic umbrage, a number of really silly ideas that are backed up with poor and flawed studies. Those are bad habits. And the other side doesn't like it at all. Can you give us another one from the 11 commandments? We'll let uh, people find the, the commandments by themselves, but one more that was pretty interesting. Well, there's one really counterintuitive one. Thou shalt not seek common ground. Because one of the few studies that I read across uh, from Harvard that I, that I really liked and really agreed with they said that if you have the same experience as somebody else, you're less likely to be empathetic. Now, how could that be true? And I threw that out. We did a very high-level training yesterday for some of our top producing clients that are just doing amazing things. 
you know, they're at the level where one of the guys that we've been coaching for a long time in a, in a single transaction, he made a difference of $8 million. And he's scared to death that his skills are going to perish. So it comes to all of our training. He enlightens the other attendees as much or more than he actually gets enlightened himself. He's just horrified at if his skills diminish, he's got so much at stake, you know, his skills diminish in any way. It could cost him $100,000. So I threw this out. You're less likely to be empathic with someone you've got common ground. And what's the Harvard study say? Because if you and I both go through the same experience and you're struggling with it, as a human being, if I succeeded, I'm not going to hear you out. I'm going to jump in and give you how I succeeded. Now, there's nothing in that about empathy. You don't feel heard and understood if suddenly I'm telling you what you should do. Why don't you be as smart as I am? You know, why don't you do this? Here's how I handle that situation. I succeeded. Stop being emotional and take these steps and you'll be fine. Like you hate that. You know, people, if you're trying to talk something out, somebody immediately starts to problem solve with you. You hate that. So if we've gone through the same experience and I've succeeded, I'm not going to be empathic because I'm going to give you answers and you're not going to feel hurt. Now, conversely, if we've gone through the same experience and I've been defeated by it, the feedback I'm going to give you is like, yeah, man, you're lost, man. You know, I, I went through that too and it just, it crushed me. So, you know, I feel bad for you. I, I share your pain, which also does you no good whatsoever. So if we don't share common ground and you start talking with me about something, I'm less likely to jump to, you know, why don't you be as smart as me or you're lost because I've got, I'm self-interested. If you succeed where I failed, that makes me feel stupid. So I don't, you know, as a human being, I'm going to be less likely to be supportive. I'm going to be, yeah, you know, you're really up against it. You know, the IRS, they, they kicked my ass too, and I just gave in. Neither one of those positions help. But if I haven't gone through your experience, I'm more likely to be curious about it. And suddenly now you find me interested and you start talking about it. And maybe by me being a great sounding board for you, and you actually just saying stuff out loud, you find your own way. That's the power of empathy. I realize now thou shalt not see common ground puts you in a position where you're likely a better listener because you're not immediately comparing their experience to yours and defaulting to one of those two scenarios. It's interesting because so far you've you've spoken a lot about yeah, being curious, you know, listening, being interesting to the your interlocutor which is already valuable. But is there a point where you, as a negotiator, have to go in for the kill? Uh, as in, like, now is the time to strike in terms of getting the outcome or trying to get to the outcome that I want. When does one know when the time is right? Yeah, well, then that becomes a real large perspective on what you think negotiation is. Now, let's switch to, if you're thinking about going in for the kill, then how does, by definition, it mean you see your counterpart? as an adversary, as a victim. How many times can you go in for the kill when you're not going to have any people left to do business with? Like if you are going in for the kill on a regular basis in all your negotiations, there's a phrase, do something right, three people know about it, do something wrong, 12 people know about it. How does your reputation spread? If you've got a reputation for always getting the best price out of somebody, going in for the kill. And I actually, a number of years ago, I'm coaching a negotiator, talking to the CEO, and he's got that reputation in his industry. And your reputation comes in the door before you do. 
So he's sitting there and we're talking and he says, I got a deal on my desk right now that the CEO of the other company has been there and we've negotiated every single point. He's completely clear on each and every point here. Went through the whole process and this guy won't sign because I've got such a reputation of winning big in every negotiation that the moment he signs this, he thinks his board's going to fire him because by definition, if you dealt with me, I've killed you. And he won't sign it because he's going to lose his job. And so, you know, the idea on a negotiation, which a lot of people believe, as you said, going for the kill. Well, my definition of negotiation is a long-term collaboration and a trusted relationship where we both prosper forever. And probably about a year or so ago, I interviewed Mark Cuban. Now, Mark Cuban is on Shark Tank. He looks like he's cast, you know, as, as a bit of a bully. Or maybe, you know, he goes in hard. He'll say, you know, I'm going to make this offer to you, and you're not allowed to even listen to other offers from anybody else. Take it or leave it. What Cuban does is test people. He wants to see how good of an ambassador you're going to be on his behalf. And we start talking about negotiations. And he was saying, like, I really want to test somebody a lot in the beginning negotiation. I want to understand what they're thinking about. I want to develop rapport with them because I want to make a lot of deals with them. And I want my deal making with them to accelerate. Now, if Cuban is going in for the kill, he's not going to make a lot of deals with you because he's going to wipe you out. And he realizes that over the long term, what I need are partners that I can rely on. I can't kill people and stay in business with them. I, it's like turnover of employees. Employee turnover is very costly. And so if you take that approach to negotiation, how you do anything is how you do everything. You know, if you're turning over business partners and turn over employees, you're going to be out of business yourself before very long. Nobody's going to want to have anything to do with you. I'm interested uh, now, post-COVID, you know, talking about the name of your group and Nicholas Talib's. Uh, concept of the Black Swan event after COVID, uh, which was a big global Black Swan event for all of us. We've transitioned to more of a work from home kind of situation. Like, you know, I work from home mostly. A lot of my colleagues do too. A lot of companies now are, are remote first. What sort of impact does a primarily digital communication have on negotiations? Is there an impact? Does it change? Or, and is negotiating more effective in person? There's definitely something about being in person. I mean, each of the means or modes of communication, if you look at them as complementary, if you don't want to stick exclusively to one mode, you know, text messaging, email, Zoom, in person, telephone calls, if you orchestrate them in a complementary fashion, you're going to be an effective negotiator. Now, at some point in time, being in person, I'm convinced that it's not the visual data. I'm convinced there's an actual energy that people give off, and you can't duplicate that through the electronic means. We don't have a way to measure it as of yet. I'm convinced that there's definitely a feel for being in person. And then there are also always moments. Like if you attend a conference on Zoom, when you're on the breaks, you know, you turn your camera off, you turn your mic off, you get up, you know, you get a refresher cup of coffee. That's a Zoom interaction. When you're in person, when you're on a break, the two of you walk down the hall together. The two of you walk to the water fountain together. You know, if you smoke a cigarette, then, uh, you step outside into the fresh air. 
I mean, there, there are these all these little moments that you get when you're in person that you don't get via any of these electronic means. But then as long as you're not solely dependent on one, let's say you can't get together in person, right? You got to have a phone call, you know, shorten your emails. If you look at each one of those means as complimentary, you can be very effective. One of the points that you've made before, which I was um, I'm interested to unpack a little bit, is around tones of voice. Could you tell me a little bit more about that in terms of the role that our tone of voice plays in negotiation, uh, when we change it, when we should change it? Yeah, well, you're communicating before you finish the sentence. The other side is having an involuntary neurochemical reaction to your tone of voice. And they're reacting to it as soon as they can hear it. And depending upon your understanding of tone of voice or how you gained an awareness of it, an intuition, the tone of voice can be a really magical thing. I'm willing to learn from anybody. I think, I don't know that you shouldn't be willing to learn from anybody. So I look at Jordan Belfort, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, separate out his reputation. And then different people, they care in different ways. They, you know, they don't care about the fact that he was convicted and is owed, you know, $120, $150 million in restitution. Some people like a very aggressive approach. Some people say that he didn't do anything everybody else didn't do. And even as characterized in the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, he said they were just better at it. And I would imagine there's a lot of truth to that. But I thought, all right, so if this guy owns, he had a lot of success, no matter how you look at it. He was very effective at communicating. And I think he had a mastery of tone of voice. I read his book, uh, The Way of the Wolf. I've read it. I would recommend it chapter on tonality, I thought had insight in it. And I thought, this is what he mastered. He mastered tonality. And I've spoken to some people that have taken some of his training, the straight line method. And there's nothing per se remarkable about the theory behind it. It's just, you know, smiling and dialing and being extremely resilient. But then they said in the tone of voice, Belfort called a secret of tone of voice. And he said, if you ask a question, ask it as if you're telling somebody a secret. Instead of saying, what are your goals? You might say, what are your, what are your goals? And you say it in a, in a way that just catches people's attention. And a couple of different people that I learned from about tonality, Belfort is one of them. Uh, Marshall Davis Jones, friend and a colleague, I wrote the foreword for his book called Tonality. And Marshall is dead on in understanding tonality. So it's a really you can get away with saying almost anything with the right tone of voice. It's amazing. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's like you say, it's not just necessarily about what you say, it's about how you say it, isn't it? That old cliche, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it, it's interesting because it really gels with, you know, I've got an almost two-year-old, uh, which uh, is you know, basically just a, a constant negotiation with him because he wants to do various things that are uh, dangerous, <laughs> essentially. And yeah, it's tone because he doesn't necessarily understand me, so to speak. He's got a limited vocabulary, but it, like I communicate with him mainly through the tone of my voice. So it definitely resonates with me for sure. Yeah, very, very interesting. We're reaching the, reaching the end of our, uh, of our conversation here, Chris. It's been fantastic. I tend to um, ask a, a bit more of a reflective question at the end of my uh, interviews with people. In your instance, I'd like to ask about whether there's a negotiation that really stands out in your mind, uh, one that either maybe it worked out wonderfully or it went wrong. Is there one that sticks out for you? Oh, there's more than one, depending upon the reason. You know, there's some that went wonderfully, 
You know, something went wrong. My former boss mentor, Gary Nessner, when he was teaching me hostage negotiation, he always used the phrase, best chance of success. And that by definition means you're not going to make every deal and some things are going to go bad. So one of the ones that I thought was going to work out that ended up going very badly, the Burnham Sabero kidnapping in the Philippines. Guillermo Sabero was murdered by the Abu Sayyaf about three weeks into that kidnapping. And then towards the end, Martin and Gracia Burnham, there were three remaining hostages and a young lady from the Philippines named Deborah Yap. And it was a botched rescue attempt, an assault by Philippine scout rangers on the encampment that the last three hostages were held and two out of three of the hostages were killed. Martin Burnham was killed. And so was Deborah Yap by friendly fire, not by the bad guys, by friendly fire. And I studied that for the longest time. And that's why I ended up collaborating at Harvard because it went bad. And we were surprised. And actually, what happened was the bad guys double-crossed each other inside. And in doing everything that we knew how to do, our own after-action was that, you know, we didn't miss any of our method methodology. It just failed. And it was at that point in time, I thought, well, a trauma you can grow from or you can be beaten, crushed by it. And so that's when I went to the guys at Harvard. I said, if we did everything we knew how to do in hostage negotiation, it wasn't enough, then we got to go outside of hostage negotiation to learn. And I found the Harvard guys, Bob Manukin, Sheila Heen, Doug Stone, Bob Bordone. They were very, very accepting and collaborative. And I learned a lot from Harvard as a result. Yeah, it's always uh, to kind of quote the cliche, like all your losses are lessons, I suppose. It's often the thing that really you end up growing from the most that eventually leads to you know, your biggest successes. Chris Voss, it's been wonderful to speak to you. Chris is uh, the CEO of the Black Swan Group. Uh, do check that out, uh, especially if you are in a, a corporate space. Uh, he does trainings uh, for a variety of uh, businesses and individuals on negotiation skills. He's also the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if your life depended on it, as well as other books. Chris, where can people find you if they want to uh, find out more? Do you, are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'll do a very selfish commercial here. Yeah, of course. Go for it. Here's your time. The website is blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Now, in the upper right-hand corner, you can find where a newsletter is, which is The Edge, which is complimentary. And... It's not valuable because it's complimentary. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't hurt that it's complimentary. But what it is is that we put out one article um, on wherever you are in the, in the world. If you give us your email address, we'll send you a concise and actionable article every Tuesday morning at 7.30. And um, it's concise and actionable. It's usable. It's not theoretical. It is real specific. And you can apply it to whatever you're working on at the time. And then also it'll end up with announcements in it about training, about new product, about you know this new platform we're working with, Fireside, the Black Swan Network on Fireside, social media app. What it is is that the newsletter is a gateway to everything the Black Swan Group does. We put a lot of free information out there, lay down your base with the free information, and then get ready for you know the more complicated, fascinating, interesting stuff when you've got your base down. So take the free stuff from us and get ready to make a big difference in your life. 
Fantastic. I'll go sign up myself. I'm very interested in your work. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for your time. It's been, it's been awesome. It's been a pleasure, friend. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel your growth. Learn more at soldo.com. Thank you.